in, in my opinion, the um, most irritating song of the 1990s uh, was What is Love? You remember this song? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Every time I hear that song, I think of, uh, there's that Saturday Night Live skit, Will Ferrell, he's like, then they made a really bad movie out of it. Man. If you don't know what I'm talking about, be grateful. Because it, it's, like, uh, it's like it just gets drilled into your head and doesn't leave. Uh, the, song, the, song is, um, the song was popular not just because it had like a great 90s dance beat for clubbers in the 90s, uh, but also because it asks a fundamental question, right? What is love? And that's, uh, that's a question that has animated people um, throughout history. It's going to animate us today. That's our, we're we're going to be asking, what is love and how do we recognize it? Um, and it's strange because we, we think we have uh, the answer to that question. Uh, as we journey through the scriptures today, uh, we're going to be reviewing some, some interesting stuff from the ancient Near East, uh, the way that they thought about gods and goddesses. We're, we're, I apologize. Um, there's going to be a moment in the service where if you need to um, take a bathroom break or get a cup of coffee, I'm going to be dealing with some philosophy of, uh, of language, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun for me, maybe not so much for you, but uh, it's really important because I think it's going to show us something in this text uh, when, we, when we get to it that, that really does answer this question, what is love? Um, and so I invite you to, to journey uh, with me through the text today. Let's, um, let's read it. This is 1 John 4, 7 through 11. This is my translation. I've just tried to smooth it so that it sounds to us uh, the way that it would have sounded to the Ephesian church when John wrote um, in the uh, late first century. So the, I'll, I'll mention a few things, but for the most part, it's just smoothed out so it's a little bit uh, easier to hear than uh, older translations. But uh, John says, Dear friends, let's love each other. Because love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born from God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God revealed his love to us. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we could live because of him. This, then, is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atonement sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, Since God loved us this way, we ought to love each other. In the middle of this text is one of the most radical pronunciations that's ever been made. It's probably one of the most radical things in Scripture. It's one of the most radical ideas in the history of ideas. And it's that, that God is love. That, that we could say that, that the, the being who, who created the universe, who runs the show, who's in charge of everything, is in that being's being love, love itself. If that doesn't sound radical to us, um, well, we live in the wake of the 1960s where people were like, you know, peace, love, let's just love each other. Uh, can't we all just get along? All that, that kind of stuff. It might, it might sound a little bit trite to us. It might sound a little bit, uh, you know, just boring to us. Yes, God is love. Let's be loving people, blah, blah, blah. It's sad that our culture has gotten to that point where we've devalued this word so much that it can just go in one ear and out the other, but that's where we are. It wasn't like that in the ancient world. When John wrote this, it would have been shocking. It would have been frightening. It would have been bizarre to the people who heard it. Because in his world, the gods were like this. Zeus, Hera, Athena, Hermes. You can see the watermark from Google Images. They wanted me to pay for this, but I didn't. 
don't report me. Are we recording this? Oh. No, 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 I paid. We're good. Uh, Zeus, I mean, I don't know what Zeus is. He's like the thunder god, I think. So like when there's a thunderstorm, right, uh, it's like Zeus is up there and he's like hurling lightning bolts down and, and freaking people out. I don't know, I guess he's got an eagle too. I, I have no idea. It's been a long time since I've heard anything about uh, Greek gods and goddesses. I do know about Dionysus. That's the party god. Um, you can see he's eating grapes and pouring out wine there. He was very popular in the Roman Empire um, for obvious reasons. Uh, it was all about having a good time. Athena, I think Athena is the daughter of Zeus and Hera. I think th- she's the goddess of wisdom and maybe some war. A lot of gods and goddesses get involved in war. They enjoy that a lot. Um, they war amongst each other. They cause human beings to, to, to war with each other. They give power for war. I'm not sure if Poseidon is the same guy as um, the Ariel's dad in Little Mermaid, but I think maybe um, King Triton and Poseidon. He's the god of, of the sea, right? And so when there's raging uh, seas out there and there's, there's hurricanes, and that's all Poseidon. He's doing that. So he's breaking boats um, and doing, yeah, he's having a lot of fun. Uh, I, I don't know who Femida is, but it looks like maybe the goddess of justice, right? So justice might be something that the gods are in charge of or at least think about. Wisdom, power, uh, violence, storms, um, speed, all kinds of different things are represented by these people. But surely, if we were to say anything about any of them, we would never say God is love. We would never say Zeus is love. We would never say Athena is love. We would never say Hera is love. There are many things, but they're not that. And then John says God is love. Well, okay, okay, fair enough, you're right, you're right. Almost every culture, every ancient culture did have a god or goddess of love. And in Greece, that was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Those Renaissance artists, look out, that's a little bit risque. Um, but that's her, she's, she's a good looking lady, uh, young, pictured as young and beautiful. Um, she's the goddess of love, right? And in Egypt, I think it was Nefertiti, I can't remember um, exactly the names. But in the ancient world, there was always a goddess of love because love was bound up with what? Fertility, right? Procreation. And so when we talk about the gods and goddesses of love, we're usually talking about the gods and goddesses of sex, which is an important part of love. Um, but surely, surely, if we were to say uh, Aphrodite is love, really we'd say something more like Aphrodite is romance. Aphrodite is eroticism. Aphrodite is, uh, is fertility, procreation. But, but surely not love. In fact, um, I think she had a son, uh, another god, and his name was Eros. This is, uh, if you've heard of this, um, this was popularized by C.S. Lewis, who did an essay in the 1950s about the four different loves in in, in classical Greece. Um, And the first is Eros, named after the son of Aphrodite. This is the the love of romance, of of, of sexual attraction, of of, of smoochy smooch and Valentine's Day. This is not the word that John uses to describe God. God is not eros. There's another. The second is is storge. Um, I I had some problems with, you'll see as you go through these, like I had the wrong accent marks. You won't mind, but it bothers me. Anyway, storge. um, Storge is, is, this is the the love that we all have known. Um, In my household, storge happens when uh, we have movie night and we put on um, Finding Dory. And uh, the kids are tired enough that they're not running around and torturing the dog. Um, but they're awake enough to kind of be there and snuggle mommy. Uh, Aaron sort of holds my hand. I don't like touching, but for her, I'll do it. Um, so we hold hands. And, and there's this, there's this uh, my dog sits on my neck. 
it's true, 3.5 pounds. Fits right there. And we're all watching Finding Dory together, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, you know what, this is good. This is really sweet. This is a sweet time. We're just enjoying domestic bliss, right? Um, It's it's a love of companionship, of knowing uh, that we've been together for a long time, and that this is good. It's settled. It's joyful. That's storge. Um, Rarely used in the New Testament, uh, because it, it's kind of it's more like companionship than anything else, and and very rarely used um, of the Christian church. Number three is uh, is phileo. Um, this is brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly or sisterly love, familial love. If you need to know what phileo is, you need to go rent. What are those movies? Remember the Titans? Is that a film? Or uh, Hoosiers? Right? Um, any, any sports movie uh, is, is about phileo. Because in every sports movie, it begins, there's a, a young group of scrappy underdogs who um, have no chance at the title, but by golly, they're going to go for it. And as they do, they start out, and there's one guy who's kind of rough and tumble, and he doesn't like um, the rest of the team. And there's one guy who's earnest and wants to please the coach and believes. And then there's another kid who has a terrible home life and, and has to deal with, with that. And yet somehow, in the middle of chasing that title, they all co- Oh, also, in, in American culture, of course, there's racial tensions, almost always. And, and, and in the middle of their pursuit of the title, they overcome all of these differences because they're all seeking this same good, this same wonderful thing. And so they, they they, they work together, and in, in the middle of that, they become like brothers or sisters. They become like family because they, they overlook all of that, and they begin to see all the value in each other. And they're, they're, they're brothers or sisters in arms in combat, and they go and they achieve. That's phileo. I want you to notice that storge and phileo are certainly nothing that you would predicate of the ancient gods. They're higher loves, but nothing that Zeus or Hera or Apollo or Dionysus or any of those uh, would have had. Maybe with each other, but certainly not with humans. Certainly not with humans. Uh, the gods were not companionable with us. They were not uh, brothers or sisters with us. They were uh, far above, and insofar as they thought of us at all, it was an afterthought. And then, of course... Um, the fourth is agape. Unconditional love. Agape is different from all the rest because it doesn't depend on the, uh, the, the person who's being loved. Right? Uh, notice that in Storge, right? Uh, yeah, we're watching Finding Dory. It's a great moment. But if my kids start torturing the dog or if my wife says something we get into a fight, we lose Storge. It's gone. Because what makes it work is that we're all doing what we're supposed to, and we're companionable, and we're happy, but that can be disrupted based on people's behavior. Storge comes and goes. It's not forever. It, it, it's actually very fragile, and you have to work really hard to keep it. The same with phileo. So long as we're all on the same basketball team, so long as we're all uh, approaching and trying to achieve uh, the, the title, we have this, this brotherly, sisterly love. But uh, and sometimes in those movies, there will be one student, one player, who leaves the team for whatever reason, and that person's gone. That love is gone because they did not perform in a particular way. They didn't do the right actions. And so they're cut off from brotherly love. Not so with agape. It doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. Agape is the love where you, you, you're loved anyway. It's the love that every human being deeply desires and no human believes is real. Because we experience from each other everything but agape. 
we experience from each other um, a lot of storge, a lot of eros, a lot of phileo, but we almost never experience from one another the, the belief that you can know me as I am, all of my dirt, all of my grossness, and you'd still be with me. That's the ideal for us of marriage, that somehow we would get to this point where we can actually know the real, dark, evil me and still be accepted and loved. This is the essence, of course, of the gospel, that God loved this way. And yes, this is the word that John uses for love. God is agape. God is love. But I wonder. I wonder about that. So, yeah, first thing in your note sheets, uh, God, uh, John says that God is unconditional love. That's, that's agape. And, and clearly we're talking about a, a God that's radical, that's super different, that has nothing to do with the gods of the ancient world, a God that's utterly bizarre, off, off the reservation, crazy, that God would be like this. For surely if, the, if God's doing anything, it must be in God's interests. And, and surely God couldn't be uh, bothered to waste God's time on us especially when we're doing things that God doesn't like. The idea that God has unreserved love for us is radical, and it shocks people even now into trusting in Jesus for eternal life. But, but I think there's something more going on in our text. And in order to see it, I think that we need to understand a little bit about language. So here's the part. If you, um, if you don't want to do any philosophy of language today, um, I guarantee you it's going to be great. Um, we're going to have an awesome time. But if that freaks you out, we do have several Keurig machines in the back. You can get a flavored hazelnut cream coffee. It's excellent. Um, it's a, light, a little bit higher calorie than the black stuff, but that's okay. Um, so l- let's just talk about words for just a second. Um, this is uh, the word field. I love this word. It was coined in the uh, 15th century, I think, uh, Middle English, uh, the, the first use of the word field, and field, just like uh, when Sting uses it, refers to uh, places where things grow, right? You know, fields, where uh, grass and wheat and whatnot. Uh, interestingly, um, that, that word started out like that, but then we're doing the, hi- yes, we are doing the history of the word field, and I think that's awesome. Okay, so in the uh, 17th century, um, do we have that next slide there? Yes. John Dryden, who is a poet and a, uh, and a, a, a little plug for the book. I actually do this in the book, chapter two, the boringest chapter in the book. Um, you can buy it for $35 out there. Um, I know I'm not supposed to make any plugs for my book, but it's pretty awesome. But here's the deal. I talk about this in the book, and this part is so boring, I actually, the only chapter I skip over is chapter two. I like all the chapters except for two. I'm glad I did it, but I never want to revisit it. Sorry. Uh, so you can get this there. Um, Dryden uh, writes a play called Rival Ladies. There's a guy named Gonsalvo. He's talking to this girl, Angelina. I think they're in love. And he says, Thou hast not field enough in thy young breast to entertain such storms to struggle in. Notice that uh, suddenly field is now something inside us. It's not out there. It's not physical anymore. Right? She's, uh, she's stressed out, and Gonsalvo's like, You have no idea what stress is. You don't have enough space inside of you. And it's like he's begun to see the internal uh, part of a human being, and, and, and it's much vaster, much wider than, um, than we would have expected because we're this size. And so he uses the word feel to talk about our internal being, right? 
That's the 17th century. So in two centuries, uh, we've expanded the word field. Now it just doesn't mean this space out here, but can also mean any just metaphorical space inside of us. Uh, let's fast forward to uh, the 19th century. Michael Faraday, he was a scientist. He invents on uh, 10 November 1845 the term magnetic field. Notice it's different. He, he's trying to explain what happens when you have a magnet on a table. And we know that when you have a magnet on the table, um, if you drop iron next to it, it comes close. And we've all had the experience of holding two magnets, and we know that uh, the closer you get, the stronger the pull, right? So it pops like that. Um, it's, it's an interesting experience. And, and when, when Faraday is thinking about what to call this, how to explain this, he's like, well, it's like a field. Um, but notice that the word field has changed. Uh, before, a field was, you know... A, out there, and it was a place for grass to grow. Then it became a place in here for emotions to happen. Now, it's a place around a magnet, and, different, um, the, the power of the field increases the closer you get to the magnet. Now the field does something. Now it's, uh, it's, it's different, it's changed. It has power, and moreover, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a farmer's field, the wheat grows everywhere, right? But in the magnetic field, it's stronger, closer to the magnet, weaker, farther from the magnet. The field has become much different than it was in the 15th, 14th century when it was coined. The word has changed. Notice that the word has changed because it needs to deal with the world. The world's changing. Last but not least, uh, my favorite here, uh, you thought I was going to use Star Trek and talk about the Force. You're wrong. I switched it up with Star Trek, a much inferior show. Uh, Captain Kirk, you can't beam through a force field. Leave me alone. I like, like science fiction. Force field. Uh, force field is interesting because, uh, you know, it's like a, it's a space, right? And we can kind of intuit what it means. Like there's a barrier here and the barrier is powerful here and gets weaker here. I mean, we've, we've, got this word so deeply ingrained into us that we can use it to apply to things that don't even exist. Yeah. And that's because uh, the more that we find out about the world, the more we discover things, the more our language has to change in order to accommodate it. So um, uh, my students, when I teach classes, uh, invariably there's always one student whose final paper begins, according to Merriam-Webster, atonement means X. As soon as I see that, I'm like, just because it's in the dictionary doesn't mean that's what it means. There's lots of meanings for things. Meaning is constantly changing. That's not how we decide what meaning is because meaning has to adapt to the world. Sometimes new discoveries about the world force our words to change meaning. Just as the word field uh, changed and adapted and, and had to, to, to get bigger and stretch out to deal with uh, all the different things that people were discovering, so I think that the word agape expands and stretches and changes to deal with the love of God in First John. I think that what John does is he takes a word that was known, unconditional love, and he expands it. He blows it up. I want to show you how this works. I want to show you how this works. Um, back to the text. Notice, notice these caveats that John gives. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God revealed his love to us. God had to reveal it. Uh, 
older translations might say, made manifest or, or showed us the real love, something like that. He unveiled love because we thought we knew what love was. We had four different words, eros, storge, phileo, agape. We knew love, right? No, God's going to do something radically different and change what love is so that it's something we have never experienced before. We're not familiar with. He gives a definition, then he goes on again. He says, this then is love. In this is love. You, you need to reconfigure love. You might even say, uh, in this is capital L love. You've been dealing with little L loves your entire life. And this is how God revealed his capital L love to us. You think it's unconditional love. You're wrong, actually. That's part of it. But that's not the whole kit and caboodle. If you want to know how God reveals or manifests his love, how he unveils it and shows us what it's like, listen to this. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we could live because of him. That word sent. Do we think about that very often? Remember, God is triune, so it's Father, Son, and Spirit, one being, three persons. And yet John is saying that the Father sort of was flying over uh, France in 1944 and he, he shoved his son out of the plane on June 6th and, and sent him behind enemy lines. That God um, told his boy uh, to, to get in, in the PT boat and, and, and attack that beach at Normandy. That's a weird kind of love. That's not what we think of as love. In fact, if we were to say what that must have been like, we would say, well, love hurts. That love's painful. Unconditional love can be totally dispassionate in the ancient world. In fact, um, when the, the Greek philosophers were thinking about agape, they would say things like, um, it's a dispassionate or distanced love, where you just simply you know, push love onto things, but they can't hurt you when you're doing it. And yet here, John is saying, no, the father sent his son into the world. And we know that the world is a combat zone in John. We talked about it a lot. And not only that, we know that, that when the Son, the eternal Son, uh, takes on flesh and goes into the world, he's going to be spat on and denigrated by the very world he's come to save. And boy, that hurts. Moreover, it costs something. When, when that, that uh, sent, um, his, his son, uh, what does it say? It says um, his, uh, his one and only son. That word um, really designates like unique or special. This, this, this close. Remember, the Godhead is an eternal union. John tells us at the beginning of his book, or at the, at the beginning of First John, he tells us that we're, we're uh, the the Godhead is, is eternally united and and, and together. Uh, and 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 God has this one and only special Son. We're all children of God through faith, right? But God has one Son who's not like the rest. One that is so dear that He's actually part of His very own being. And this is the Son God gives up. This is a cost that no human being could possibly understand or imitate. 
I'm going to go back to the text for a second. This then is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atonement sacrifice for our sins. I love how it starts out. We, um, the, in the ancient world, you know, it was assumed that everyone loved the gods because they're always trying to get their favor. So people would be, you know, burning sacrifices or they would uh, behave in a particular way that they thought that the gods liked. And so it was expected that people were loving the gods and then as a response, gods would love us back. That's not this love. In fact, this love takes the initiative. This love doesn't respond to us. This love jumps out. This love uh, attacks. This love makes it happen. There, there's nothing about the beloved that, that makes it happen. God just loves us. And notice he says he loved us. It, it's not dispassionate. It's deeply affectionate. That's the, the next thing. It's, 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 it's also affectionate. And the last thing, um, this love is an atonement sacrifice for our sins. Older translations will say propitiation. Um, I use... Uh, um, Atonement sacrifice, because it really is the word that was used to talk about the, the bull or the sacrifice that was on the day of atonement in Israel. They would cut it open and it would set all of Israel right before God. God is deeply, powerfully affectionate and God is giving his son up as an atonement sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that's designed to set things right. Everything that's wrong in the world, it's designed to put it right between us and God. The agape of God is not just a, a love that sits there and, and loves you as you're wallowing in your failure. That's what agape was in the ancient world. You could love someone who, um, for example, had a very terrible uh, flaw in their personality, right? And, and what agape would be is that like, you don't stop loving them even though um, they're so awful. That's amazing. What's crazy about God's love is it doesn't leave you awful. It changes you. It radically alters you. When you recognize that God has loved you and he's paid for your sins, he wipes the slate clean. He gives you a new life inside of you, a new possibility, a new family in the church. God shakes everything up. He sets all of the wrong things right in Christ. When John says God is love, he takes the word love and he blows it up. A love that hurts, a love that costs, a love that takes the initiative. It's deeply, passionately affectionate and it sets all the wrong things right. I think, um, I gotta, what do I have next? Yeah, there it is. When we um, talk love, and when the ancient people talk love, and when we do it now, it's unfortunate that we, we so closely associate love with that, that heart. I love you. I say this all the time to uh, people. I love you. You probably say it too, to certain people. Not everybody. But some folks, you're willing to step... John's not an I love you kind of guy. Not a big I love you sort of fellow but I bet that if we were hanging out and I was, you know, rubbing his shoulders a little bit, I might be able to get him to tell it. I love you, Tom. I bet he would. I bet he would. No? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Not going to happen. Uh, and yet, when, when, we, when we throw this word out, when we talk about the way we love each other, um, how often does it, it have this kind of like, this makes us feel good because we all love each other. This is great. I love you. Sunshine and rainbows. What would it look like 
if every time we used the word love, what came into our minds was that. Yeah, the God of the universe being murdered to wipe away your sin, to give you new life, to set you on a new direction, to give you a new end because deeply, passionately cares about you, because won't wait for you to make the first move, because he's willing to hurt, he's willing to give up and cost, and he's determined to take everything that is wrong in the universe and make it right, and it starts right here. That's what love is. The last thing on your note sheets is this. It's um, love, little l, is heart-shaped. Capital L love is cruciform. I didn't coin that word. That's um, from Michael Gorman. He's a, a Paul scholar. But he, um, he developed this word cruciform to give the shape of God's love. And it's a shape that is, is radically different than even, even the highest love that the philosophers could invent in agape. Even higher and deeper and more powerful and more attacking and more intimate, and yet at the same time, distanced and, and right. It, it, it's beyond human comprehension because we don't know what it's like to be the God of the universe and to come down and be with us, to be spat on by us, to be murdered, tortured to death by us. We cannot comprehend that. And yet that's what love is. When John says God is love, he says something that had never been said before. And to be honest with you, I don't know that we're able even to say rightly now. I think all we can do is aim for it. I, I say this because, you know, we, we tend to think that, like, oh, I, I can, I'm, I'm into this Christian love thing. Uh, so, for example, today we heard that there's um, opportunities for us to show our Christian love by going to Haiti, which is something I really strongly recommend, and I hope that... Um, this Christmas and the next year, we're really going to ramp that up. I'd love to have more folks come. Um, I'm uh, thinking about dusting off my, my shoes and making the plunge um, myself. But here's the deal. If I do that, it's not as though I was sitting there being like, I'm just so moved with affection for these people that I am going to go and do something that's going to hurt me deeply cost me a bunch um, in order to make the wrong things right. That's not what happens in my heart. Instead, I'm kind of like, well, I should probably be doing a little more service. <laughs> I seem to be serving myself a lot. Maybe, maybe I should, I don't know, do something for the Lord. This seems like a good opportunity. Maybe we need to see a little more of this. And that's, just, that's just me. I, you're probably much better. But, but I wonder if sometimes that's how our Christian love is generated instead of, instead of something like that. Where God says, looks down at the human race and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I'm going to fix you. And you're going to love it. So uh, there's your temperature check. When you've decided that you have achieved Christian love, and, you, and, you, and you're, you're looking in the mirror and you're feeling very good, you're like, yes, I've done it. I have, now, uh, I have now loved deeply. Uh, take your temperature. Is this love hurting? And by hurting, um, I, I don't mean that it needs to be cutting or anything like that. That's, that's weird. Um, but I do mean that, um, imagine that, that kicking 
um, the son out of, out, out of heaven and, and sending him down to earth. I mean, that hurts. A, a father's love for his son, knowing what's going to happen to him, that's a deep pain. It's deep emotional pain that God incurs um, in the incarnation. Does it, does it cost you something? I mean, are, is your love sort of like this thing that you just kind of, it's convenient, and so you do it, and it makes you feel good, so it's a big win for everybody. That's eight, the, the new atheist, Richard Dawkins. He recommends this kind of love. He's like, anyone can, do, be, can be a loving person. Just make sure you donate you know, a couple hundred bucks to some cause, and you'll feel good about yourself. That's not the love of God. The love of God costs you. It doesn't have to be money cost, but it has to be some kind of cost. It might exhaust you a little bit. It might um, take you to places you weren't ready to go a little bit. Is your love a response because someone did something nice for you, and it's like tit for tat? Or does your love look out and simply seized with affection, goes and does something? Are, are you that sort of person who's, who's developing a, 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 an affectionate, initiative-taking love? And perhaps most importantly, is your love setting the wrong things right? You know, I, um, I'm a people pleaser. Many of you are. And so uh, what I really want to do in any given interaction with another human being is I want them to feel good. That's not love. Love is having the guts and the chutzpah as our Jewish friends say, to lay it on the line and say, this is right, and I want to see this for you because I care about you. And saying, I'm willing to even step into this mess That's, that is your life and help you and be a part of your journey as you sort these things out. It, it's a kind of, it requires a deep honesty that's often very difficult to have. We don't want to do those things. And yet, if we really want to have the love of God, our love has to be setting things right. And that's another reason why it has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're like me, and you've ever tried to make something right, you've made it worse. Doug mentioned the projects I used to do in Haiti. And goodness gracious, I am no carpenter. Uh, when I try to set something right, it, it's a disaster. Uh, which also is a lot of my relationship with my wife. It's like, I think I know what I'm doing, but nope. And so I know that a love that's coming from me is from me when it makes crooked things more crooked, when it sets wrong things even wronger. Instead, what, what God is, 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 is putting into our hearts is a love that's empowered by the Spirit so that it goes and it sets the world right. It, it takes the things that are crooked and makes them straight, and that's how you know it's not from you. It's from Him. Him through you. Because left... On your own, well, you're a lot like me. Brothers and sisters, we don't know what love is until we remember that it's cruciform. Let's love in a cross-shaped way together. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have revealed your love to us that you endured um, the hurt and the cost, that you took the initiative, motivated by a deep and abiding affection for your creation, a creation that has rejected you time and again, and that you came and you set sin aside at the cross. 
You changed hearts, gave us new life, new future, new destiny, a new family in the church. God, I pray that we will be people who learn to imitate that love. That our love will be self-giving, engaged like yours. Stir up your spirit in this congregation with acts of love um, that the world cannot deny and bring um, many to faith because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.